Welcome back to Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast, where we dive into the heart of what makes the property market tick. I'm May Claire Bolton Smith, your host and curious observer of all things related to property, from affordable housing to market trends and the impacts of natural disasters to climate change. I want to converse about it all. While we typically focus on the theoretical impacts of governmental regulations, climate change, and natural hazards on the property market, today we're going to talk about a real-life case study that puts theories and our core logic data to the test. Hurricane Ian. In late September, this storm became one of the most intense hurricanes in U.S. history. The storm, which reached Category 4 at its strongest, devastated Cuba and the Florida coast before moving northward to reform as a Category 1 hurricane and hit South Carolina. Sadly, estimates are showing more than 100 people lost their lives and hundreds of thousands of homes have sustained damage. Financially, not only was this hurricane catastrophic by historical standards, but within the current American economic context, Inflation at a 40-year high, interest rates nearing 7%, labor is hard to come by, and materials are difficult or expensive to source. The damage is even more pronounced, and the recovery from this hurricane will be slow and difficult. By all accounts, Hurricane Ian was record-breaking. But now that the storm has passed and the news coverage has calmed down, the real work begins as people begin to repair and rebuild. To understand the magnitude of such an event and what it means for the residents and the local governments in the areas it touched, we have CoreLogic Senior Catastrophe Response Manager, John Schneer. John, welcome to Core Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Okay. Well, I do want to mention that we are recording this podcast on October 6th, and the consequences from the storm are continuing to unfold by the day. So you're new to us here at CoreLogic, but you're not new to extreme weather and its impacts. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic? Of course. Yeah. So still fairly new within my first year here at uh, CoreLogic, but I've been in the risk management industry for four or five years now. Uh, Began my career uh, as a consultant on the cab modeling uh, side of the business. We worked primarily in the public sector, so away from traditional cap model users, um, the insurance and reinsurance clients, uh, you know, working with federal, local, state governments, um, NGOs, research institutions, other consulting firms, with the overarching goal is to help increase resilience to natural disasters. Awesome. Um, and cap models are incredible when it comes to the, the output for models, incredible for a use for that. Um, so before joining CoreLogic, I worked at a major reinsurance brokerage firm. So helping our clients uh, place reinsurance. Um, and using the cap models to price those. Uh, but I was fortunate to get a message from you, May Claire, <laughs> to uh, apply for this role here at CoreLogic. Core so um, it's been a wild ride since. Uh, so I guess as the you know senior cat uh, event response manager, we've sort of been in charge of uh, running the show, making sure everything's still moving um, when there is a live event, uh, responding to it to our different client bases, making sure everyone gets the information and the data they need to make the most informed decisions they can. Awesome. Well, I, I will take full credit for bringing you into CoreLogic, John. I've had my eye on you for a number of years. We've known each other, and I'm just thrilled to bring you into this role and chat with you today. The one thing I did want to clarify, you did mention cat model. I did want to clarify for our listeners, we're not talking about fuzzy creatures with feather boas. We are talking about catastrophe models. So let's just clarify that. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk all about the cat modeling industry and where we are. So 
I do want to talk a little bit about hurricane season. It's been a very interesting season this year, and hurricane season does traditionally end in November. I'm a little worried that that's not going to happen this year. But let's first let's talk about Hurricane Ian. So, can you tell a little bit about this storm specifically, where it hit, and why it was so record breaking? Of course. So, uh, Hurricane Ian is definitely going to be remembered as um, one of the worst storms and. Uh, U.S. history as far as landfalling hurricanes, yeah. um, you know, for the number of fatalities, the catastrophic damage almost, you know, across a huge uh, portion of the Florida Peninsula. Um, so it's going to be a remembered one for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what made it unique is it sort of had the uh, combined impacts from a number of other historical storms that were particularly catastrophic in the U.S. It was a big, big, slow moving uh, hurricane that made landfall on the Florida Gulf Coast. Um, which is an important thing to remember from a storm surge perspective, mm-hmm. right? Hurricanes that make landfall on the Gulf Coast, the, because of the bathymetry, um, you know, beneath the ocean surface there, it's kind of a gentle slope up to the coastline. It makes it a lot easier to push more water onto, onto land. Yeah. So when you have a big hurricane that reaches real far, big radius of maximum winds, uh, but also moving very slowly towards the coast, it's going to push more water. So you're going to see an elevated storm surge. It's one of the big things about this event. And, you know, it made landfall as a category, a high-grade category for a hurricane. We're talking 150-mile-per-hour winds. Wow. And I mentioned it was big. That's a lot of homes that are going to experience major hurricane-force winds, hurricane-force winds, and also, I mean, tropical storm-force winds were felt as far as Miami-Dade. Yeah, one thing we've never really talked about before is kind of, how storm surge happens. So I think that was really helpful. You you to talk about bathymetry, that might not be something that many people are familiar with. I kind of mm. think of bathymetry as many people are familiar with topography. Bathymetry is basically topography underwater. underwater. So it's what does what does the ocean floor look like? And based on how the ocean floor is it can impact what the storm surge is going to look like. And I think that's, you know, what you were saying is why we had such a significant storm surge from this event. Um, another thing I want to talk about that you did touch is the size of this storm. I know a lot of people compared initially, were like, oh, this is going to be like Hurricane Charlie. It's going to have a similar landfall. But we, I know at CoreLogic, we've done a bit of research on the size of Ian compared to some historical storms, Charlie, Ian, others, and that this storm was massive, like in terms of wind field size. Can you can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, Hurricane Ian was a lot like uh, Irma in that sense. So mm. um, both hurricanes um, were incredibly large in terms of how much area they covered, but they also underwent, with, this is actually contribute to their size and their intensity, underwent eyewall replacement uh, cycles, um, mm-hmm. which is basically, if you can think about the clouds within the um Storm center sort of, uh, you guys basically a second eye wall starts forming around the first. The first one, the inner one sort of dissipates. Okay. It gets much bigger and stronger, right? And mm-hmm. so you had both of these have one of these cycles uh, happen right before landfall, which contributed to um, not only their intensity, the max winds in the eye wall, but the actual size of that radius of maximum winds is kind of a term that we use in meteorology is to describe the uh, distance across the hurricane where you're seeing those hurricane force winds. Yeah. So the thing about Hurricane Ian, you know, relative to Charlie or, or Andrew, for example, mm, yeah. is that um, it's more than twice the size of like wow. Hurricane Charlie, for example. So Charlie both made, it is incredible, they both made landfall in the same location as the same Hurricane Saffir-Simpson category, a category four hurricane. Yeah. Uh, Ian was twice as big. Wow. Okay. So that that is huge. So not just, you know, immensely strong winds, but immensely strong winds over such a 
wide geographic area is what really contributed mm-hmm. to this. So, okay. Yep. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about loss estimates. So CoreLogic has released two financial loss estimates for this storm. First, we looked at insured losses for wind and storm surge, which we released, I think in the day or two after the event within probably within 36 or 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were initially ranged between 28 and $47 billion. And then about a week later, we issued a second loss estimate, which included flood losses. So then the flood along with the wind was estimated between 41 and $70 billion. So can we talk a little bit about this? Like starting with why did we do two loss estimates? What did that include? And those are really big numbers. So can you just kind of dive into them a little bit? Of course, they are really big numbers. So there's a couple of reasons why we released them twice. And I want to make one point about those numbers before we dive into it. So the 28 to $47 billion that we released um, soon after landfall are insured losses. These are losses that uh-huh. are going to be covered by insurance companies in the US. Okay. The 41 to $70 billion um, includes not only the insured losses, but the uninsured losses, uh, right? So your, your home is damaged, um, but if that's not part of your insurance coverage, you're gonna be left to foot the bill for those additional losses. So- um, a Question I wanna jump in is, why would something be uninsured? It's a great question. So um, there's a couple of ways things could be uninsured. First of all, it could be uninsurable. It could be a type of structure or property oh. that insurance companies won't even write policies for. I mean, you might be able to go to a specialty insurer and get insurance policy, but that's a very special case. You're going to be paying an incredibly high premium for that. Um, the other issue is that uh, insurance can be expensive, right? Mm-hmm. If you are not required mm-hmm. to have insurance, and we all know there are some cases where you are required, if you have a mortgage uh, for your home in a special flood hazard area as defined by FEMA, right? The 100 year flood zone, you need to have flood insurance. You are required to, for that mortgage, for the bank to write that mortgage, you're required. Okay. Right now, if you don't live in the special flood hazard area, you are not required to have flood insurance. And okay. if it's too expensive or you don't want to pay for it, you don't have to. So when we release an insured flood loss estimate, we are just talking about the losses to the insurance company that is above a deductible up to a limit for a given policy and then aggregated to all those insurers. Gotcha. Is it safe to say that wind is insured and it's flood that has places where it's not insured? It's trickier. It's it, There's a bit of a distinction, yes. So wind will be um, generally covered under your standard homeowner policy. Okay. Uh, flood is not covered under the standard policy. You can add an addendum. This is if you aren't required to have a flood insurance. You can add something onto your policy to cover okay. flood losses as well. Not required. Um, but wind in, in your typical home insurance policy that any one of us has yeah. on our homes, it will cover wind. Okay, good to know. Okay, I want to I want to keep talking about losses. Um, we actually have talked about loss estimates before on this podcast in episode twenty five when David Smith joined us. He and, and he's a key contributor from our science team to who computed these losses that we are talking about. And I do encourage if you haven't listened to that episode, do do check it out because um, it is related to what we're talking about today. But one thing. I think that is really important is, as you mentioned, we are talking insured losses or uninsured losses, sometimes with flood, but not economic loss. And I think sometimes headlines will talk about economic losses. Can you talk a little bit about what's the difference between an insured loss and an economic loss? Yeah, of course. I mean, economic loss, think of that as the total damage from the hurricane. This is everything. It's 
homes. It's going to be your gazebo in your backyard. It'll be mm. power lines and road. Anything that can be damaged and was damaged will be in your economic loss. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, only a subset of everything yeah. is insurable, right? So okay. there's other things that are uninsurable. We aren't going to even, including economic, not the insurable. A portion of anything that is insurable is insured. Okay. Which is a smaller portion of a circle. If you're starting with a big circle of economic, that's everything. And that would include things like in, uh, infrastructure and and such. Exactly, it'll include everything. Yep. Um, one of the things we focus on with the um, when we talk about resilience in any shape or form is the difference between the insured loss and the economic loss, right? So that gap is called the insurance gap, and mm. those are the losses that you, me, any of us are going to have to cover. If we lived in Florida, you know, we're paying for um, paying for those repairs, uh, any federal assistance you get, um, which will, you know, come from, come from FEMA or the government, um, the tax, the U S taxpayers are footing that bill essentially. So that insurance gap and shrinking it is uh, a huge goal, uh, especially in the flood insurance world, right? Sure. To, to yeah. make sure more losses are covered by insurance companies. Yeah. And I know that that was a huge story and headline with hurricane Harvey back in 2017 is that I think I want to say it was 70% uninsured flood losses with that event and, and really just showing that huge insurance gap with Harvey. Um, we didn't see quite as huge with this event, but it still was pretty significant. I think, you know, over 50% of the flood losses were uninsured. Is that correct? Uh, that's what our initial estimates of the flood losses are looking like. Yeah. So we, um, for Harvey in particular, you know, we had a lot of, uh, you, know, you can think of it, um, all that damage that happened in the Houston area away from the mm -hmm. landfall location, all that precipitation induced inland flooding. Yeah. A lot of that flooding happened outside of the special flood hazard area, outside of the hundred year flood zone. So these were homes that were not required to have flood insurance. Right. Um, and they didn't, maybe if they were in lower income neighborhoods that couldn't afford the rising prices of flood insurance. Yeah. Uh, and you know, they were, they, they were impacted, um, more, uh, more materially. Uh, than people in the special flood hazard area. Mm -hmm. We are seeing some examples of that, though not to the same degree that we did in Harvey. We're seeing that in Florida. We are seeing uh, some material flood losses, um, but they tend to be within the areas of the special flood hazard area, the examples we've seen so far. Okay. So um, yes, uh, the, the proportion of insured to uninsured is not, that gap won't be as big, we don't think for uh, Hurricane Ian. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, I want to keep talking a little bit about the private insurance market. I know before the storm hit, we at CoreLogic speculated that this would be a market changing event and that this really could cause insurance companies to go bankrupt given the extent of what the, the damage the storm looked like mm -hmm. it was going to cause. Is there anything we can say about this now? It's probably too early to say anything now about the impact of the in private insurance industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, claims will be coming in for the next year um, and the magnitude of those claims. You know, it's hard to say what the average claim will be. Um, yeah. There have been a lot of analysis of the storm saying that the insured losses to the private insurance market are going to be um, unheard of before and that mm. the, the private insurers and the you know uh, Florida citizens, which you can think of as like a insurer of last resort or a reinsurer for all the okay. uh, carriers that write in Florida, the impact that they're going to take um, will be catastrophic. Uh, we saw that with Hurricane Andrew. That was back in the early 90s when um, uh, insurance companies just weren't really prepared. They didn't really understand the risk of their portfolios when it came to hurricanes. They hadn't okay. seen um, uh, events so severe. And what happens is when insurance companies can't pay the volume of claims um, that they're receiving, they go, they call it, they go insolvent, basically, they go out of business. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that leaves homeowners with no one paying the bill. 
Ah, gotcha. Okay. So to say that there will be catastrophic impact to the insurance industry in Florida, it's too early to say. There's been some speculation that it might be. There have been some speculations and modeling efforts to say, no, they've got it pretty well covered right now. Um, it's, it does remain to be seen. Okay. So time will tell for sure. It's something we will definitely keep an eye on and and probably you know continue to provide some insights as we see the the industry change and as the story unfolds, I suppose, with the, with the storm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Staying on that topic of, um, you mentioned insolvency, you know, potentially insurance companies going bankrupt. I, I, what does that do to the homeowner? Like what happens to the homeowner if the insurance company can't pay the insurance claim to them on them having a damaged or a lost home? Uh, I mean, it's a great question. And like the short answer is, uh, you're, you're in trouble, right? I mean, you're going to be reliant on any sort of federal assistance, um, which is going to be minimal at best, um, tens of thousands of dollars. But if you need to, if you're home, if you have to rebuild your home entirely, and that's, we're talking a million, half a million to a million dollars, right? That bill, you know, it's going to be on you to cover that in the, in the meantime. I mean, I'm, there will be safety nets in place where um, there might be payouts that can help with that. But if you think about it, you just lost your home and the insurance company isn't answering the phone, you need a place to live. Yeah. You're going to have to start footing that bill to start. I mean, and if people have the means to do so, great, but a lot of people don't. So yeah. without the insurers, uh, I mean, it you're in trouble if you need to rebuild. Yeah, no, it's definitely a scary situation. Hmm. Um, something else I wanted to talk about, sticking with, you know, that press release that we issued before the storm made landfall. We also talked about reconstruction cost values. And I know we had a pretty hefty estimate of trillions of dollars of homes in the cone of uncertainty that were at risk to this storm. Can you talk a little bit about how that estimate that we released before landfall differs from these insured loss estimates that we released after the storm made landfall? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, one of the things that CoreLogic has that a lot of other companies know is we have this incredible database on um, all of the homes mm -hmm. you know, across the U.S. So we can really use that to our advantage when it comes to these estimates of homes at risk um, prior to an event making landfall. So we, we published a couple of uh, we published uh, a couple of estimates prior to landfall, looking at uh, the number of homes and the total reconstruction value at risk to storm surge. Um, you can think of reconstruction value as the cost it would require to rebuild your home from zero to 100%, right? That's, it's the materials to rebuild. Okay. Um, and it does not include the contents. This is, if you needed to rebuild your house, this is what it is. So our estimates, think of our estimates as like the ultimate worst case scenario, the very, very high end of any potential event. Will that number ever be realized? No, not wow. every home that was in the cone of uncertainty or had storm surge risk is going to get damaged. Right, they're not even all going to necessarily experience flood or winds just because they were in the cone of uncertainty or they had high storm surge risk. So only a portion of those that had high risk even saw flooding or winds, and only a portion of those experienced damage. So the high end of any estimate will be this number. This is the worst case scenario if everything at risk was damaged 100%. It's different from any sort of model loss estimate because we're now looking at the uncertainty associated with um, did a home even experience win? Oh, uh, the uncertainty okay. around how much damage a specific type of building experienced for a given wind speed. That's like, uh, basically how these models work is um, 
we, we know something about the potential range of um, damage that a certain wind speed would do to a specific type of building. We know something about the distribution. We can make a uh, statistical inference and we can say, all right, well, there's a, the highest likelihood that if the wind speed was 150 miles an hour and we had a wood frame home, it would be 75% damage. And if the home was valued at $500,000, then the loss is 75% of that. Gotcha. So when we use the models, that's a much more accurate estimate of what the losses will be because it accounts for all the uncertainty. Uh, and it's not like a worst case scenario because not every home that could be damaged was damaged. Right. Um, and the ones that were damaged were not damaged 100% necessarily. Okay. So just one thing to finish off then. Um, we've You've made a lot of comparison to other storms in the past. And you know, we've we've really seen an impact, you know, Harvey and Irma in 2017, Katrina back in 2005. These kind of storms, these market changing storms, these extremely devastating storms, you know, fortunately, they are relatively rare. I guess it's, you know, one thing that I'd like to talk about just to kind of end on maybe a positive note is what has the industry learned from these storms? And I feel like, you know, where we are now with Ian, there were a lot of lessons learned from these past storms. And that is maybe why it hasn't, even though it did have a major loss, it maybe wasn't quite as extreme as some of these previous storms have been. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think one of the trends we're seeing for these storms, and I think um, Harvey Irma, actually Ida does um, a pretty good job of exemplifying mm. this as well, along with Ian is that we're starting to see a lot more damage and risk further inland from the landfall location. Ah. Uh, and the reason that, right, these storms are getting wetter. That is something that uh, climate scientists are fairly confident about when it comes to climate change mm. impact on hurricane activity. We aren't necessarily going to see more hurricanes. As a matter of fact, I think the research is pretty inconclusive on that. Um, there is some confidence in that we'll have a higher proportion of major hurricanes, cat three, fours, and fives, like all these ones we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's a basic thermodynamics kind of thing, but if the air is warmer, it can yeah. hold more moisture. Hurricanes are going to be wetter. Okay. And as they move further inland, that rain's going to go somewhere. So yeah. you're going to start seeing, um, I think one of the things we're going to start seeing and what insurers are going to have to start taking into account is the increased flooding risk, um, mm. both, you know, pluvial uh, rainfall, flash flooding, Mm -hmm. and fluvial from overflowing riverbanks okay. further away from the coastline, farther inland, you're going to start seeing substantial, um, you know, hurricane related flooding. You know, a lot of these um, policies are based on, an, um, uh, or at least from a reinsurance standpoint, if it's a named storm. And if you think about a major rainfall event just happening in uh, Appalachian area or something like that, it's not a named storm, it's just a rainfall event. Yeah. But if they're named storms, if there's, you know, you have, uh, if, you know, how Ida can go all the way up into Northeast um, dumping rain. This is a, it's a big deal um, that there's a much higher risk inland because um, of these events. Okay. Well, that's a theme that we've talked about a lot here on Core Conversations this year is climate change and the impact it is having broadly across multiple industries. Um, one thing I did, you mentioned name storms and it made me just think of, I know with Andrew, Katrina, some of these big ones that we've talked about before, those storm names have been retired and we will never have another Hurricane Katrina. Will we ever have another Hurricane Ian? Most likely not. No, I have wow. think Ian will definitely be retired. Um, I mean, is it from the, the fatalities and the damage, yeah. you know, even if this isn't going to bankrupt the insurance, and I mean, this was a bad event, right? These damages, we said our estimates of un, uh, insured and uninsured, we're talking up to up to $70 billion. This is a big event. It will be retired. Will there be other category four and five 
hurricanes making landfall on the Florida Gulf Coast? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's going to happen at some point. There will never be another Ian, though. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today on Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast. It has been so great to chat with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Hurricane Ian or follow our hazard event response in real time, visit hazardhq.com. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. And please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, and social media duo Sarah Buck and Michaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation. Thank you.